Okay, we are on Psalm 24, and um, I have a basic outline of this short psalm before us uh, on the board, and in a certain way, it almost seems like three psalms, uh, though though they are certainly all connected. Uh, I will ask you, after we read this, what do you think the key phrase is? What do you think the key idea is in this psalm? But let's read the words. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. This is what the New American Standard says. Who seek your face, even Jacob. Most versions have something to the effect of the God of Jacob. Silah. In verse 7, Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient of days, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Salah. So if someone were to come up to you and ask you what is the key phrase there, what would you say? Okay, King of Glory is used five times in those four verses. Now, where else do you remember that phrase, King of Glory, being used before in the Psalms? Or anywhere else for that matter? Can you remember? That's right. It's not used anywhere else. So, so it's only in this particular book or only in this particular psalm. And so that makes it stand out. If it is only used five times in the whole Bible and all of them are within these four verses, uh, that makes the phrase, the king of glory, stand out. Now, something else I would uh, ask you to notice, and we're going to make a play on this, almost as important as that king of glory, is the verb uh, translated lifted up. The verb translated lifted up. Now you see it in verse 4. One who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. You also see it in verse 7, twice, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Verse 9 says the same thing. So verse 7, it's used twice. Verse 9, it's used twice. But 
This is one you don't recognize, probably, uh, unless you were working uh, with your um, Hebrew Bible hub. Uh, In verse 5, he shall receive a blessing. That word receive is the same Hebrew word translated lifted up. So it's used in all six times. That verb, and we'll make a play on that and make a point about that in a moment. Uh, but uh, this would be kind of the overall structure of this psalm, which is characterized as a psalm of David. But look for the words lifted up, the king of glory. Those are going to be key, key ideas. But as he begins, he says, The earth is the Lord's in all it contains. We stated that generally in a Hebrew sentence, in a Hebrew sentence, the verb is first and then the subject. When the subject is first, uh, the, that is for emphasis. The, the, the word that's first in this sentence is to the Lord or to, uh, to the Lord. So that is emphasized first. To the Lord, the earth. And all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. So the focus, as we say with so many things, the focus is on the Lord. The Lord is front and center in this passage. To the Lord, the earth, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell on it. This reminds me of uh, of a passage in Psalm 50. Uh, Psalm 50 begins in verse uh, 10 by saying, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that it contains. God doesn't need, in this context, our sacrifices. He doesn't need our animals as if they weren't His already. Every beast of the forest is His. And every cattle upon a thousand hills. The earth is the Lord's. Now, verse 1, do you have a footnote by verse 1 that includes any other passages? Uh this idea that the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Uh, do you have any footnotes there? Exodus 9. Okay, Exodus 9. We're in the context of the plagues, uh, that God strikes the plagues on Egypt. He says, all the earth is... Was it around verse 16? 29. It's, it's 29. Okay, the end of the plague there of the um, hail. But um, the passage I was thinking of, beside verse 1, is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26. That's the passage I was specifically thinking of. That is in the context of what to do when an unbeliever invites you to an idol's temple. And the Bible says, if you're disposed to go with him, go, because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It seems like it's quoting from Psalm 24, verse 1. 
And he's making the point that everything that you eat is a gift from God. But the earth is the Lord's, all that's in it, the world, and those who dwell on it. He has founded it upon the seas. He has established it upon the rivers. He's founded it on the seas, established it on the rivers. What does that mean? What does that mean? The NLT says he built it on the ocean depths. Built it on the ocean depths. Okay. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like creation. You know, that the the Spirit of the Lord moved over the water and then from there everything came into being. Okay. Brad, you had... Yeah, I was remembering an evidences uh, thing that somebody... Um, calculated the mass, or, or I can't remember exactly what it was, but they most people assumed, most scientists assumed everything started with um, uh, earth or some kind of a matter, hard matter. But uh, another scientist assumed everything, all planets started as a as a water, yeah. and his calculations were much more accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm going off of that. So I don't know that may be totally unrelated. No, no, I do think it is it, it is connected, like you and John are saying, with creation. Uh, it is connected, you know, it says the Spirit of God was a God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it seems like the earth is covered with water. And, and remember on the second day, God separates the waters above the expanse from the waters below, and it was the third day that dry land appeared. Brad? And it's reminding me of the flood more than anything. Okay, it does use flood kind of language. Like, you know, back yes. in Genesis 7, you know, those, the, the fountains of the deep bursting forth, the floodgates of the sky were opened. Then verse 17, the flood came upon the earth 40 days, the water increased and lifted up the ark. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just kind of interesting that that mm-hmm. same verbiage yes. of this, yeah. the seas are being lifted up, uh, just kind of interesting. No, that is a good point. That is a good point. And there are places where there is much of the language of creation that is repeated in Genesis 6-9 through through that account of the flood. Um, So it does tie with creation, especially it also ties uh, with the flood in the days of Noah. But but I would say too, and and I... um, when you look at some stories of the Canaanites and the Babylonians and their stories of creation, their stories of creation always involve the last enemy to be subdued by their various gods were the seas and the rivers. And in a way, this psalm, this whole psalm, And these first two verses is a way to claim that everything the nations claimed for their gods is true of our God. It is not Marduk of the Babylonians who controls the seas. It is not 
uh, Baal of the Canaanites or El of the Canaanites. It is Yahweh, the creator of heavens and the earth. And he, in this particular passage, it's not that the seas and rivers put up a big fight against him. Nothing can stand before his power. But but all of this is just a way to, to say he is not just Israel's God. He is God of the whole earth. He's God of everywhere. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. Everything is under His dominion and His sovereignty. Understanding His greatness. Understanding His power. Understanding He can speak our worlds into existence. Then the question focuses on His worship. Understanding how great He is, the question is asked in verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in His holy place? Now, there's been a whole psalm we've covered. This isn't a trick question. That there has been a whole psalm we've covered that basically asked and answered that question. What was it? 50. Psalm 15, that's right. Psalm 15 dealt with this same kind of question. Uh, Psalm 15 um, opened up. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And it goes on to give about 11 characteristics of those who can dwell in God's house. But here in Psalm 24, the who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, who may stand in His holy place. We want, we want to be a church that is open to people who have all kinds of problems in their lives, who are seeking to change their lives. But we also want to be a church that emphasizes holiness. And those things don't have to be inconsistent, do they? You know, Jesus did both pretty well. Jesus was inviting to sinners who committed all kinds of deeds, and yet at the same time, He also called them to holiness. And this passage does that. It calls us to holiness. And when he asked the question in verse 2, or he asked the question in verse 3, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, in verse 4, you say that you see that he gives two positive examples and he gives two negative examples. Let's deal with the positive examples first of all. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? The Bible says, he who has clean hand he who has clean hand and he who has a pure heart clean hands and a pure heart Isaiah 1 was talking about why God did not excel the worship of the people when they had brought burnt offerings and they had brought incense and they uh, observed the Sabbath and the new moons. 
God says in Isaiah 1.15, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply, multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. In contrast to Isaiah 1.15, where God did not accept their worship and did not... Uh, was not pleased with their sacrifices because their hands were covered with blood. This passage tells us that those who come near Him must have clean hands. They must, uh, they must be, uh, have hands. And actually, the word says, uh, in Hebrew, the word is innocent hands. Uh, in Isaiah uh, 33, in verse 15. By the way, Isaiah 33, verse 14, has a kind of question much like Psalm 15, much like Psalm 24, verse 3. It asks, who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can, can live with the continual burning? He who walks righteously, who speaks with sincerity, who rejects unjust gain, who shakes his hand so that they had hold no bribe, he stops his ears uh, from hearing about bloodshed, he shuts his eyes looking upon evil. Doesn't say, doesn't use the term innocent hands or clean hands, but it says he shakes hands with no bribe. So one must have clean hands. And one must have a pure heart. We remember Jesus saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In Matthew 5 and verse 8, Who may ascend into God's hill, who may stand in His holy place, you have a clean hand and you have a pure heart. Do you have a comment on that or an idea uh, about that? He who has clean hands, and a pure heart. It's a positive requirement for coming near the Lord in worship. Now, that is a pretty brief description. But it encompasses all we intend and all we do. That's pretty broad, isn't it? Internal, external? Internal, external. Yeah. Encompasses everything. Two positives and two thinking in action. Yes, thinking in action. Yes, um, and two negatives. Two negatives. So the positive, clean hands and a pure heart. The the negative is not lift up and that's the first time we see this particular word not lift up your soul to vanity the New American Standard has well, Micah are you still bringing your NIV I want you to listen to the difference of the NIV there what does the NIV have for that phrase in verse 4 it's so different. Um, let me read the whole verse. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Okay, does not trust in an idol. What they are doing is they are translating this word that's translated vanity in most versions, and they are making that a reference to an idol. Okay. And uh, is that often the meaning of the word? Yes. May it be right here? Yes. 
But that's the reason for the difference. Now, this phrase, lift up your soul, sometimes it basically means to trust. Look at 25 verse 1. 25 verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. What does that mean? Well, often, if you don't understand something in Psalms, read the next line. It may be a parallel statement. Oh my God, in you I trust. To lift up our soul to someone is to trust in someone or something. And here, and it can mean different things in different contexts, but here, to lift up our soul to the Lord is to trust in the Lord. To lift up one's soul to vanity may be to put our trust in an idol. But sometimes that word vanity is is broader than simply other gods. Now, the next phrase in the New American Standard Bible had to swear deceitfully. To swear deceitfully. And boy, this is a hard one. I before E or E before... Except after C. Not after C. So just spell it for me. Don't give me a rule. It's E before N and chicken. And you know that rule. Okay, swear deceitfully. It's E-I. Okay, E-I. Okay, swear deceitfully is the New American Standard Bible. What did the NIV have there? Swear by a false god. Swear by false... The the NIV makes both of these a reference to avoiding idolatry. Both of them. Now, can this swear deceitfully indicate serving a false god, serving an idol... Yes, it can. Does it have to? No. Uh, an example uh, in um, Jeremiah 5 verse 2. Jeremiah 5 verse... Although they say, as the Lord lives, they swear falsely. I believe it's the same term used here. Jeremiah 5, 2. They say the Lord lives, but they're swearing falsely. To swear falsely means they're not, they're not keeping their oaths. And do you know this is the phrase when the Bible says, do not lift up the name of the Lord to vanity. You may not even recognize what I quoted. I quoted a passage you know. It's, it's, it's the third commandment not to take the name of the Lord in vain. And it says, you will not lift up his name to vanity. It uses that phrase, lift up, it uses that word for vanity in Exodus 20 in verse 7. And um, so it may be idols, it, it may be broader than that, but if we're going to come into God's presence, we're going to have to have clean hands and a pure heart and not lift up our soul to vanity. And not swear deceitfully. What is the line, John? Do you remember the line in Psalm 15 about the person who swears? Swears to his own hurt and does not change. Okay, he swears to his own hurt. He does. He said, "I'm going to do something," and then it's hard to do, and he still does it. Brad, you had your hand up. Yeah. So one um, tick mark in the column of maybe this being idolatry. Um, the idea of who may ascend the mountain of the Lord or stand in his holy 
place reminds me of Moses uh-huh. because he's the the only one that I can think of that they would have been talking about that's ascending a mountain. Uh-huh. Maybe I'm not maybe I'm not remembering something or standing in a holy ground, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, to me, it, I think okay. Well, what about Moses and Hebrew says Moses rejected the idolatry of Egypt. Um, yes. Yeah. And it is that kind of person that reject who has, you know, Moses had everything, but he gave all of that up, the, the pleasures of sin yeah. and the idolatry that went with it in order to approach God. And he's the one that was able to ascend the mountain. Okay. It may be a reference to idols. One of the things I was thinking of a passage in Jeremiah 7 is one of the reasons their worship at the temple wasn't accepted is they were worshiping uh, other gods in Jeremiah 7 verse 9. They were, they were swearing falsely and they were offering sacrifices to other gods and then they think that their worship was going to be acceptable in this house. Jeremiah 7 verse 9 again. And, and, uh, so obviously you're not going to be able to ascend God's holy hill if you, you are worshiping other gods. What I would say with that Brad is probably, I think this is a more general reference, not just to Moses on Mount Sinai, but probably the temple built on the mountain, you know, too. Um, but, uh, but yes. And, 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 and that may be right. I mean, e- either way has something to argue for it. But, and the Bible says in verse 6, He shall receive a blessing from the Lord. Now, we already pointed out that this is the word lifted up. This is the only one you really don't see by an English translation. This word translated receive. I think I spelled that right. But, it's, it's, it is the same word lifted up. Now, I'll think about this. He has not lifted up his soul to falsehood or to vanity. He's not lifted up his soul to other gods. In 25.1, he lifts up his soul to God. And as a result, in effect, God is lifting him up. His blessings fit his faithfulness. His blessings fit. He has lifted up the Lord and not lifted up vanity, and God's going to lift him up. And, and boys and girls, we call that when you have the the blessing fitting the, the faithfulness or the punishment fitting the crime, that is. Lex Talionis. Yes, Lex Talionis. Yes, exactly. And um, so, very good. But he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. Now, let me just ask you, and it, it, this seems like an obvious question, not trying to trick you here, but if you read this word righteousness, and your version may be different, because there's a couple of other words that are used. How do you think that word righteousness is used? How how is righteousness the word righteousness used sometimes in scripture? The 
verse 5? Yes, we're talking about verse 5. The NIV doesn't have that. It's vindication, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, that would be like being pronounced innocent at the end of a situation. Righteousness can be an attribute of God. God is righteous. Or God is holy. It sometimes is used parallel with justice. To do justice and righteousness. To do the right thing. That we do the right thing. Sometimes it's an attribute of God. Sometimes it's a call for us to do the right thing. Sometimes it's used interchangeably with salvation. I don't know if this is needful. Uh, or, or this is the best way to interpret it. But some emphasize that in this context where God demands clean hands and a pure heart and a soul that's not lifted up to falsehood nor sworn deceitfully, that we receive righteousness or salvation from the God of salvation. That's a reminder to us of His mercy, even in the midst of our call to holiness. Now, certainly we know that's true in the whole Bible. It may be true right here. It may be reading too much into it. But since you're looking at your translations well tonight, and, and there's some little things like this, did you notice what the New American Standard said in verse 6? It says, This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, even, in italics marks, Jacob. Now, is something missing <laughs> the King James and the New American Standard both have Jacob. ESV, NIV, and almost every other translation has the God of Jacob. Now, you say, how. You know, obviously, though, the idea is seeking. It's got to be. In this context, even those who seek the God of Jacob. But the, the reason the New American Standard and the, and the King James does not have it is because they are following the Hebrew text. The reason that some translations have it is because it follows the Greek translation, the Old Testament, which they had the God of Jacob. But obviously, in this case, it seems like to me that it belongs. Our God is great. He's awesome. He's holy beyond our ability to grasp. Should we not seek to live in conformity with His will and to humble ourselves to Him? It's not He who owes us something. It's we who derive everything from Him. We have to live a holy life appropriate to what a holy God He is. Now let's just read verses four through or seven through ten again. Let's read seven through ten again. You see, King of Glory is going to be mentioned repeatedly. You see that the phrase, the verb, lifted up is going to be repeated four times in this section. What could have been the circumstance that gave rise to this? What could have been the circumstance that gave rise to these verses? In verse 7, lift up your head, O gates, 
and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, obviously, uh, what are some observations you would make, first of all, about that text? Anything? It it's, could be implied that these are the gates uh, of Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, it is a psalm of David. Mm-hmm. So it could be yeah. telling the return of the ark. Okay. Very good possibility. It could be the return of the gates of Jerusalem. What could be the other possibility there? The only thing that I could I could I would think of offhand. And it might just be the temple gates, I don't know. And and, and I recognize the temple wasn't fully um, David didn't collect the material but didn't build it, but it, it may be looking at that possibility. But uh, you see, first of all, you just see obvious level. There's a lot of repetition there, isn't there? And, and repetition is a good way to drive home a point. You got repetition from verse 7 to verse 9, and then from verse 8 to verse 10. You say, well, we could have cut this psalm two verses shorter. We could have stopped after verse 8. But there's a purpose of repeating it to drive this home. And, and I think what John said is good about the moving of the ark. The moving of the ark. Remember in David's time they moved the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. That this may It may refer to the fact that they have won some battle. What may indicate that? What may indicate in this text that this is after some kind of Military victory or military battle. The Lord mighty in battle. Okay, the Lord mighty in battle. There's a there's a small clue there in verse eight. The Lord mighty in battle, and uh, he is also called the the Lord of hosts in verse ten. Um, and uh, the Lord of hosts we've talked about could be the heavenly bodies. It could be host is a term for armies. And it's often in context to emphasize great strength. But, uh, so they may have won some victory. Did they generally carry the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield? Okay, a lot of y'all shaking your head. No. Uh, I, I, I don't want to be nice here, but I, I don't agree with that. Okay? I know what y'all, well, I know what y'all are all, I know what verse y'all are thinking about. And you tell me if I'm not getting this right. This is, this is a fun game. Tell me what verse you're thinking about. Okay, the verse you all are thinking about is 1 Samuel 4, where they bring the ark into battle, and Hophni and Phinehas bring it out and he gets captured. Am I right? Or, so, everybody's like, I do think, but remember how Uriah, when David calls him back to try to get him to go into Bathsheba, he said, listen, I'm not going to go. The, the army of Israel and the ark of God are in tents. 2 Samuel 11, 11. I think that shows it was typical to put the ark, of, take the ark of the covenant before them in battle. Now, 
1 Samuel 4, it may have happened because the people had lost consciousness of God to such a degree they weren't even concerned about the ark. I, I think the indications are it probably was with them. It's supposed to be with them. Numbers. Here's a couple of passages I'm using to, to, to give that. Numbers 10 is the wilderness experience in verses 30, particularly verses 35 and 36. But then in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 11, where uh, they take the Ark of the Covenant with them uh, in the days of David. But what I'm saying, I'm trying to tie this all in together. I'm not just trying to trip you up. So they go to battle. They take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. They are victorious over their foes. They're victorious over their enemies. Either the gates of Jerusalem or maybe later the gates of God's house and the gates of the temple. They are bringing the Ark back to put it in its place. And it is saying, uh, Arise, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient gates. The King of glory is coming in. They're recognizing that God is the cause of all their victories, that God is their strength, that He is with them, that He's mighty in battle, that He has defeated the foes, and they're giving Him all glory. The King of glory. I think this may be the setting that gives birth to the psalm. Now, uh, you can tell me if, if I've missed something there, if you think I've missed something. But lifting up the head can mean different things in different contexts. In some cases, it can refer to arrogance and asserting yourself against God. But like we said in Psalm 25, 1 and 2, it sure does seem to indicate trust in God. And here, lifting up their heads and lifting up the gates, it's a picture that it's almost all everything in the city and inside of it is rising to salute and honor this King of glory. And with the repetition here, the repetition... What you look for in repetition is if there's any difference in the way like verse 8 says something and verse 10 says something. And notice verse 8. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. It says Lord of hosts instead of the Lord strong and mighty and mighty in battle but also it says it uses the word he actually in Hebrew in 2410 the word he is used twice it's used twice if it were translated more literally it would say like who is he this king of glory The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Now, you may say, what difference does that make? With that particular word, He, emphasis a couple times, it is like He and He only. He's the King of glory. It is not the God of Babylonians. 
Marduk. It is not the God of the Canaanites, El or Baal. It is not these who are the King of glory. It is Yahweh of hosts. It is Yahweh strong and mighty. Yahweh mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. He and He alone. This is maybe a statement after a victory over another nation. And they're bringing the ark and they are celebrating that all they have and all they are is because of God. And God is the King of glory. Now, any question that you have on Psalm 24, if you, uh, if you, if you disagree on something, you've got a comment. Anything... Where you get, where's the twice? He's in verse 10. The, the, the pronoun he. It's not translated in the New American Standard. Uh, but it's translated like at the, at the first of verse 10. Uh-huh. Like, who is he? This king of glory. Okay. The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Does, does it have a note there? It's, that's how it reads. Who is he, comma, just king of glory. Okay, the NIV does. Mm-hmm. Now that is, but is there a second he? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that is interesting because um, that it, uh, it no. When somebody says, "What's the best translation?" You're going to have to narrow that to a specific verse. <laughs> you really want to give a good answer. What's the best translation on this verse? Because it's not going to be the same all the way across the um, the page. But that, that's that's a good point. But but anything else? Any other ideas? Tommy, um, yeah. it, it reminds me of, uh, like you said earlier about the David preparing the temple and, and all the stuff that, you know, making, making that easier for Solomon and how... Um, the, he was building a palace um, for God, and it uses that word "palace" yeah. in in um, and also alternatively "temple." You know, the the word mm-hmm. for temple and palace are both used there. Yes, but in in David's mind, at least in, in the Chronicles, I remember it was a palace and a, a kingly palace, not just a temple for a god, but a palace for a king. Um, yeah. And just just the fact that this is a psalm of David, and that he's recognizing the true king is not him. Oh, absolutely! But God, absolutely. You know, the first qualification of a leader is they recognize submission to higher power. By the way, and you probably some of you probably do know this. Do you know? In the first hundred years of this country, there were laws in various states that you could not, you had to confess faith in God and faith in Christ to, to run for any public office. Mm. To do what? To run for any public office. To be in a higher position, you had to acknowledge a greater power. You had to acknowledge God and Christ. And I think it was shortly after the Civil War that some of those things were ruled unconstitutionally said you can't have a religious test 
Uh, and of course, now as soon as they have religious tests, you can deny all those things. But 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 you look in the original constitutions of the state, which I just did on the parts about religious freedom, and uh, it is it's pretty striking some things that they um, that they said, and they also were given freedom even in places like Massachusetts. They, it was stated that rulers have the right to call the community to days of fasting and prayer. But I'm not trying to get lost in that subject. I'm trying to emphasize that to be a leader, you have to have a recognition that there's a greater power and there's a greater authority. And I think that was a good comment. Even though David is king, He's recognizing who the real king is. John? What? So I have a note that uh, this is, some have considered this to be a liturgical psalm. I don't know, I don't know that I understand what that even means. Uh, I, I looked up the word liturgical, but it has to do with public worship. Is that connected to the last half of this psalm and kind of the it, it could be, and answer? Yes, it's kind of like the, the read and response uh-huh. type or responsive reading. Uh, like that, some people say that they believe that, you know, lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, uh, that the King of glory may come in. That that would be like a line of the priest. And the question is asked by the people or vice versa. Who is the King of glory, O Lord mighty? and uh, strong. It, it is, and, and we've done a little of this tonight, and so uh, obviously I, I'm, I'm not totally against it. It is hard, though, to be precise in how they were used in worship. I think that, that what you're saying makes sense. That it could have been used in that way. But that's the idea of uh, liturgical there. Would you agree, Carter? <laughs> you, don't, you look like you're really intent on that point. Um, but what what else? Anything? That's a that's a good question. Um, but I'm glad you did look up uh, liturgical. I'm glad I didn't have to spell it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, how would we relate this all to Jesus? If you were going to relate this to Jesus. I want to make sure in this case I always let you all go first because sometimes you all make good points that I haven't had down and I just get to add on to them instead of acting like I really didn't have it. Um, so what? how would you say this is fulfilled in Christ? He is creator of it all. Okay. Jesus as creator... In John 1, Christy, what were you saying? Uh, he was lifted up. Okay. John 1, 1, 2, 3. That verb lifted up, Jesus said, if I be lifted up. I believe he uses that phrase three times in the Gospel of John. In John 4, Excuse me, John 3, 14 and 15, right before the God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Uh, but He says, I don't think He says it there, if I be, He said, the Son of Man will be lifted up as the serpent was in the wilderness. 
And then in 8.28, he is lifted up, um, and they must recognize he is. And then in John 12.32, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement. So, Jesus is lifted up in a different way. And, but, but this ties with another point. The glory... There are a lot of passages that deal with the... Um, well, first of all, God's glory cannot be shared with another. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, the Lord claims that He alone is God and He will not share His glory with another. And yet there are many passages that talk about Jesus sharing in that glory. He said in John 17, 5, uh, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began. John 17, verse 5. But in the book of John, the glory of God is often connected with the cross. John 12, 41. Um, okay, I may be leaving out some references. But all these passages are at the end of the gospel as they are preparing to talk about the cross. But Christ being glorified, I think I left out some references. And let me look up some more before I send that out. Um, But he's lifted up. He's glorified in the process. And I would say, too, that, that, that Jesus is often called king in the New Testament. But there is a heavy concentration of those verses on Jesus as King around the cross. Around the cross. You remember in Matthew 2, you remember the wise men come in Matthew 2, verse 2, and they are looking for the one who is born King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Do you know after that, you do not find that title, King of the Jews, in the book of Matthew until you get to Matthew twenty-seven eleven, and Pilate asked Herod, are you the King of the Jews? And you see it, I think you see it in all about four times there in Matthew 27. He is King, and the throne from which He reigns is the cross. He is the King of glory. He is glorified in the events surrounding the cross. He is lifted up in the cross. And by the way, we know that being lifted up refers to His crucifixion because John 12, 32 and 33 says, when He said this about being lifted up, He tells what kind of death He was going to die. You think about this. You think about the King of glory who is mighty in battle giving Himself to be crucified to be killed for our sins and wounded for our transgressions. It is an amazing call. Anything else you all have? I'm sure there's more that we could do. So it reminded me of um, the triumphal entry when I was thinking of 
king and of the gates opening or the entry. Very good. In. <clears throat> yes, in, in John, um, in John twelve, he is called king in that account, the triumphal entry, and. I think that Zechariah 9 9 that quotes from may even use that phrase gates. I forget. Let's see what John 12 15 says. John 12 15. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Your king is coming to you seated on a colt. I was thinking that it may use the term gates in that passage. Deborah, but I'm not in Zechariah nine nine, but I'm not remembering Julie. Hmm. Not seeing it here in the New American Standard. But but yes, that's very but it's very good. It's like the gates of the city are opening up to receive the king. It's almost a reenactment of Psalm twenty four. So that's a good thought. But very good thoughts. Well, that that is interesting because isn't that where too isn't that where the Jewish leaders rebuked the disciples for uh, praising Jesus and, and the statement was that if if they don't the rocks the will rocks cry will out. cry out. So you've yeah. got you've got inanimate objects yeah. acting you know uh, in hum, in human ways and the same thing here with gates and doors yes yes that's right and in in the world the earth is the lord's and all that is in it you know everything is bursting forth in praise but yes even the rock yeah good point yeah very good ideas guys well, even Pilate had that put over his head and when they oh yes him, absolutely ask him uh, to change it. He said, what I've written, I've written. I know, yeah. And he is the king of the Jews. That's a, yeah, I meant to write that passage up in John 19, verses 19 through 22. But I will have more than that when I send this out, Lord willing. But, but, but thank you guys. That's very good and very helpful. And um, so we see that the footprints of Jesus all through these Old Testament Psalms. Okay. Um, he also says in John 10 that he is the gate. Yes. And whoever enters through him will be saved. Yes. So he's both the king of glory and the gate. Um, but is, it, is it verse 7 or verse 9 or 11 or, of John 10? John 10, 9, I think. John 10, 9. Okay. Because I know that uh, that's in the context. I'm the good shepherd. Yes. But we'll have uh, Bob lead us in prayer, and then Brad is going to lead us in our.